Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. I thought uh, tonight we'd talk about my adventures of the extended weekend and uh, all the data migration that happened here. So everybody else sat around, ate turkey, dipped into the dressing, got a second helping of mashed potatoes, put a little turkey grave on it, and kicked back and relaxed. And you're working like a freaking madman across your house. Every piece of critical data in your house got touched or moved or migrated and you had your office all apart. It was quite the adventure. It really was. It ended up being something in the vicinity of 30-something terabytes, which to some people, that's like, oh, that's a walk in the park. But that's a significant amount to move around. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, it'll be interesting. I have, uh, we do data migration. I mean, so you do, so I guess you start here. You do data migrations at fairly large scale, or at least walk with companies as they do that. Um, we do data migrations at kind of a medium scale. And then uh, I would say you're you're squarely in the power power user category if you're moving, you know, almost 20 terabytes of data around your house. Yeah, you know, it'll be an interesting transition. I think we should uh, get to some feedback and then we'll dive in. What do you think? Let's do it. I love that idea. Our first email today comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. So I'm going to be closing on a home. Congratulations. And it got me wondering if there's any type of leak detectors I could use with Home Assistant. Is there anything more automated or better than a visual inspection for detecting roof leaks? So, Steve, I'll let you. St- well, actually, I, I'm, I think I'm going to go first this time because you'll have the the uh, the more home assistant answer, which is more direct. So, I'll just address the whole: uh, Is there a better way to do visual uh, or be- better way to monitor for leaks other than visual inspection? So, Steve will get into some of that. I will tell you, at my house, when I first bought my house, it needed a new roof, and so we put a new roof on it. And it was the first roof that I'd ever done. I'd done it with a couple of buddies that had done roofing before and had a leak. And they they told me, you know, when we got done, they said, hey, we're going to take a garden hose. We're going to spray it. We're going to see, you know, if there's if we got everything we need to. And so we, we thought we had everything done. And for my own peace of mind, what I did was I went and installed cameras inside of the uh, the roof. I got some used cameras and I stuck them up. They're not I don't even powered on all the time. Um, but when I wanted to, you know, early on when we had first completed it, I had them running so I could keep an eye on what was going on in, in the roof or in the attic. And even now from time to time, if it rains really hard or there's something going on, I'll flip them on and I'll just pull them up just so I don't have to climb up there and phys- physically look. So th- that's the way that I've chosen about going about the lazy man's way of doing visual inspections. But Steve, I understand you know of some ways to do that with sensors. Yeah. So the... Short answer to the actual question that Jeremy is asking, how do, like, how do I monitor for leaks in a roof, is you can't really. 
the way that sensors work, generally speaking, is they have metal contacts. And when they come in contact with water, the circuit is completed and then it sends off a signal. In order for that to work, you either have to have a massive leak in your roof and you probably would end up knowing about that. Or you'd have to guess exactly right as to where you think the leaks might actually be coming from. So this would help you if you had a suspicion that you had a leak, like say you went up there and it looked like there were some drip marks on the rafter, you might be able to do something that way. But if you're talking about even a thousand square foot attic, I don't know how you would cover that in sensors with the way that they traditionally work for leak sensors, because again, they're, they rely on some little puddle to um, bridge the contact. So there's tons of those that work with Home Assistant. You can get the Zigbee ones. Uh, you can make your own. There's there's Wi-Fi based ones. They're all over the place, and there are tons that are supported by Home Assistant. Like if you've got a Zigbee network, the Acara stuff is easy and cheap. Um, but th yeah, it's it's problematic because I I even question the ability of cameras to be able to detect that because you have to have a really well lit up room and then you also have to have a significant amount of water for the camera to be able to catch that appropriately because like let's say for ease of use you even have 20 feet from end to end or approximately let's say I don't know four four to six meters end to end and you have a camera at either one of those well, you've got those rafters and you the camera is not necessarily going to be able to see between the rafters in all places. And so you may catch it that way if you know where you're looking and you get a different a significant amount of water. But if you've got a slow leak, you're probably not going to see that because that's going to largely be absorbed by the wood as it's running down the wood and to wherever its final destination is. So if you were doing this from scratch, what would you do? I got up there and I built myself a uh, proper footing in my attic and I strung 75 feet of LED light uh, strips. So like the actual outside ones mm -hmm. because inclement weather, whatever. And I put them all throughout my rafter and I basically go for a look. Uh, I did that before I put up the, the radiant barrier because now all of my rafters are covered. So uh, I because of the radiant barrier, I would have a centralized place where the water would drip down now more or less because it's being caught by essentially a sheet of, of aluminum and then running all the way down the beam anyways. But uh, that's the only way that you can really verify for sure. The other ones will give you, you'll be able to catch big stuff, but you wouldn't be able to necessarily catch slow leaks. Would you know? Like how, how good are your cameras? Um. So I, you're right. I can see with the, so with the lights off and the night vision on, I can see the little bits of dust and or, you know, insulation particles floating around. So I would tell you, if you know what you're looking for and you are making a conscious effort to go look for water, you'll see it, even if it's a slow leak. Um, where I think it'd be problematic is if you were trying to rely on some sort of automated thing to scan the cameras or you were just like, casually looking like you, you have to pull them up and you got to look at the screen be very intentional about it and look to see if you're looking for color changes on the wood which will tell you like you say water is run down or you can actually see the water kind of dripping in um, and a part of what I did I, sh I should have looked up the exact models I bought but a, a part of why I did it um, was because when we first had the when we 
first finished the roof and I had the leaks, I installed the cameras before we patched them. Um, so I knew that I was going to be able to see where the quote unquote problem areas were. And, you know, my friends are telling me, they're like, oh, it's fine. You know, you kind of expect that and you go put a little through the roof there and, and seal it up and, and it's good to go. And it, it's been whatever, five years now, four years. And that has proved to be true, but it's still, when there's a really heavy rain or something, it just gives me peace of mind to know that I can get eyes into my attic and without having to actually climb up there. Yeah. Our second email comes in from, well, actually, uh, kind of adding on to this. So going back to Home Assistant for a second. So a few months ago, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I had purchased a millimeter wave detection on a recommendation of a friend and played with it, made it about a week, maybe a little more than that. And ultimately what I concluded was it was a little bit too proprietary for my tastes. So Steve has been on a mission to try to find a more FOSS friendly alternative. And Steve, you came up with something. Yeah. So just to backtrack a little bit, Noah bought the Acara FP2, I believe, um, which required a use of an app to, to essentially get it set up, even though it's Zigbee. Um, and I didn't like that at all. Not to mention the price was like 80 or $85 or something like that. Uh, so I went poking, I, I looked and I looked and I looked. So first of all, I have a long documented hate, hate relationship with Zigbee. So I was going to be damned if I put Zigbee on my network willingly this time. Um, so I went searching around and I found a Wi-Fi based one that is out of the box. They advertise, let's say, uh, they didn't specifically advertise ESP home, but they advertise that they are instantly compatible with home assistant and they, they claim a no code setup for home assistant. And that claim proved out to be true. So it's by seed studio and we'll have a, a link to the wiki of the one that I ended up purchasing in the show notes and it works pretty well. Um, all things considered. Now the challenge here is with more, the more open you get, probably the worse the documentation is at least at first. And so, uh, there was a raft of options in this device that I have no idea what they do. And I wasn't able to find anything specific about what do each one of these settings kind of do. Um, not to mention there's 40 something sensors that it exposes and I don't have any use for or knowledge of what, what they all do, but, uh, it works out pretty good. And uh, what I did like about it is they actually have left space inside of the device itself so that you can pop the lid off and plug in your own uh, sensors. Like if you want a, I don't know, a luck sensor or a temperature sensor or whatever, you can pop those right onto the board and they actually provided standoff and screws to, to be able to do that. So, so far I give it a thumbs up. It was $40 US uh, off of Amazon and uh it's definitely done far better than the PIR sensor that, that we had in the same location. Like Steve said, you can find more on at the show notes, podcast.snoahshow.com. Also, 2-Bit in the chat room links to the Akara uh, water sensor from cloudfree.shop. $15 on sale, actually, from $17.50, 46 in stock. Have you played with this at all? I have that one. Oh, this is what so, you're talking about. Okay. Yep. Cool. Yep, I've got that one. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can you can uh, you can pick it up there. Charlie writes in and is asking about point of sale. He says, "Good evening. 
everyone. Do you have recommendations for a good, solid, well-built POS, also known as a point-of-sale gear that works offline with Linux and is self-hostable? Ideally, I'd want to focus on cash for the majority of transactions without needing a constant link to online servers or payment processors. This is what I've been recommended. I saw three open-source POS packages. There's Odoo, there's the open-source point-of-sale, and there is Unicentra. If possible, I want to avoid smart, always online, Windows, Google, Amazon, monthly subs, etc. Charlie. So the one I'm most familiar with is uh, open source point of sale. I've never seen it in production. I've never seen a client that has it in production or set it up for anybody. I'm just aware that it exists. I've mentioned in the past Squirrel Systems. Now, Squirrel Systems is not open source in the, from the standpoint that, you know, it's published on GitHub, that sort of thing. However, they have a very good enterprise POS that runs on top of Linux. And so it is self-hostable. You can run the server, you can run the client. They sell specific hardware. So you get like the, you can build, they have like a touchscreen interface and you're able to do the things like set up custom menu options and stuff. So if you've got uh, like, let's say a restaurant, you can put in the different orders. And when you tap on mashed potatoes, for example, it will allow you to choose with gravy, without gravy, with butter, without butter, that sort of thing. And you can design the interface to look however it is you like. So so that part of it's really nice. Last last time that I worked on an install of one, it was running Fedora. And so it's, it's Linux-friendly, runs on Linux. Uh, I think it meets your requirements. It's probably going to cost you a pretty penny. And again, it isn't really open source. So if your goal here is to try to get away from corporate things, this probably isn't really going to check the box. This really is more along the lines of if you're looking for a rock-solid, stable POS system and you don't mind paying for it. Steve, I'm guessing POSs are kind of outside of your wheelhouse. Yeah, I have no input on this one. Sorry. Our fourth email comes in from David. David writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Something that has been on my mind for a while, and I wanted to ask you about in an email to give you the appropriate amount of time to consider the question. The question is this. Upon your death, how would you best prepare so that your surviving spouse who is less tech savvy can deal with the infrastructure that you left behind? For example, I have an xCloud instance running on AWS and on a personal domain. I use Bitwarden, Authy, and Matrix. I've left some instructions in a safe, but I don't see my wife logging into my domain ISP or LightSail. I ultimately want to ensure that the important things like usernames, passwords, Important digital documents don't become too inaccessible to her. I haven't added her to an xCloud yet. I don't want her to lose access to the documents upon my death. Should I just leave it on Google? Hopefully this gives you an idea of the problem I've been mulling over. Any insight is appreciated. I love the show and I've been listening since episode one. Sorry for the dark question. So I, I would say I appreciate the dark question, David, because what it shows me is that you're thinking ahead and you're wanting to plan with intentionality what your death looks like and you're trying to take care of your wife after after your death to make sure that things are as smooth in an unimaginably hard time for her things would otherwise be smooth so she doesn't lose access to things like kids kid photos and all of that so i don't think it's dark at all per se i i actually think it's rather beautiful steve have you put any thought into succession planning and, and what your wife would do in the event of of your untimely departure from this planet yeah actually i've i've thought about this quite a bit um, so the first thing that that I thought about was passwords. What do I do with this? Um, so there is a jump drive that we have that has 
a just an XML dump of well, I suppose it's a CSV dump of of the password manager at the time that I created it, and it's GPG encrypted. On top of the fact that we we ended up moving to Bitwarden before that, and specifically we I'm paying for the organization out out of Bitwarden, so we're both in the same uh, vault as it were, and so. Okay anything that that is passwords that she needs to get to go in the vault so that it shows up on hers anyways. So that was the first step is making sure passwords are there. Um, not to mention making sure she gets on bank accounts, which is, this is a non techie thing, mm. but making sure she gets on bank accounts and like the, the, um, the car deed. And at least in this state, it's mandatory that your spouse is on the mortgage. So, you know, that was already done. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about that sort of stuff. I've also done stuff like mapped out my critical infrastructure in terms of like actually giving a network diagram with pictures, not like a network diagram that you'd find from a Cisco person, but mm -hmm. with the actual pictures of the actual devices. Mm -hmm. So, um, so she knows what and, she's looking for. Yeah. Well, that's more so that I can, she can show Noah and Noah can come and help out. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I try to leave good documentation for pretty much everything that that is important. Like if I do, so I use Node-RED in Home Assistant. And if I've done a new flow, I actually um, take a screenshot and I also copy the code. And then I describe what that flow is doing in inside of the wiki so that, you know, what is this supposed to be doing? Um, and I update that sort of re, uh, frequently. So. There's a bunch of stuff that I do like that, and and honestly, I'm just hoping that I out uh, that Noah outlasts me. <laughs> you know, so all joking aside, I would say there is a there is a there is a uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but a moment to where you would say it is. I'm deeply grateful. We talked about last week about showing gratitude and that sort of thing. I'm deeply grateful that. I have friends around me, both in, from the standpoint that I can serve them, but also that they can serve me to where if something happened to me, uh, I've thought about this numerous times that there would be other people in the tech community like Steve and, and like others that would step up to say, oh, yeah, we can, you know, we can bail Noah's wife out of a bad spot or Steve's wife out of a bad spot or any techie's wife out of a bad spot because we all have the sh same shared passion. And as long as we leave uh, enough technical documentation for our technical brother and they'll be able to figure it out. I have straight up stolen uh, Dave Ramsey's idea with this. And so Dave Ramsey would tell you to have a physical legacy box and then he would tell you to put things like bank account records and wills and all of this inside of a physical box. Now, if that works for you and you have everything in physical form, great, more power to you. With my uh, kids ESA alone, they, it has moved organizations, I think, three times because different financial firms have gotten bought out by different financial firms. And so I'd be reprinting those things and constantly trying to update the box. And then it would drive me nuts because it's not really the reflection of my source of truth. My source of truth is the electronic thing. So I've kind of stolen and updated his his idea. I follow Dave Ramsey to a T, but when it comes to legacy stuff, I've kind of taken the electronic approach. And my electronic approach is instead of a legacy box, I just have a legacy folder. And it sits on a a shared drive that my wife and I both have access to and we visit it yearly. And inside of there is a key pass file. 
KeePass file has all of the usernames and passwords that you could possibly need. And then also in there is just a simple markdown file written like documentation, like I would write for any client or any site. It outlines things like IP addresses, where servers are, and critical data paths. Here's where all of the data is. Now, in our pre-show discussion, we were talking with the mumble room, and somebody said something along the lines of, you know, it would be great if you could just move it into an external drive so that everybody just knows you pull the USB drive out and plug it into your laptop. Bob's your uncle. There's the data. And that works if all of your data is smaller than the largest drive that you can single drive that you can buy. If you wanted to cheat that a little bit, you could go with one of those little four drive enclosures that will stripe a bunch of drives together and present it all to the computer as one. I have elected to go the route of, I sat my wife down and I said, listen, here is how ZFS works. We're going to walk through and set this up. It's only like four or five commands to install ZFS and import a pool. Maybe not even that many. And so we sat down and did that on her laptop and she was comfortable with it. And so that's all written out as part of the instructions. Like, Hey, you grab these drives and she, she knows she can take them from the primary server, from the backup server. She knows where the offsite backup is. It doesn't matter. She's going to take those drives. She's going to plug them into an external drive enclosure, plug them into her laptop using the key pass file. She'll be able to decrypt the data set and import the pool and she'll have access to it from there. She can pick out what she wants and store it in a more convenient fashion if she wants, or she can just continue to use it off of the ZFS share. Now, I've jokingly gone back and forth with her a little bit on, like, in the event that something happened, would you maintain all of the IT stuff? And I, Steve, you'll be proud of me, or her, or both of us. I, I got her to agree that she's not sure she could live without Home Assistant, because it has... <laughs> so so she's, she, I said, would you tear it all down? She goes, no, probably not. And I said, well, would you leave it running? She goes, well... I'd leave the file server and Cody running as long as it worked, but as soon as that ran down, I'm not sure if I'd rebuild it. And I said, okay, well, if that, you know, if that goes down, file server goes down, there's certain things in Home Assistant won't work. And then she got this look at her face. She's like, no, I think I'd want to keep Home Assistant. I'd probably have one of the guys from the shop come over and help me out, but I, I'd want to get Home Assistant back up. I thought, ah, yes, score, I win. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I would leave you with this, David. I would leave you with, uh, if you can, if you can write it out, simple that a person doesn't need to think, to follow, that's the ideal situation. If you can't do that for whatever reason, the next thing I would consider doing is buying, you know, once every year or once every five years or whatever, if you can fit all, your entire data set onto a single drive or into an enclosure with a bunch of, with a collection of drives, I'd go that route. And that leaves it very consistent that your wife just plugs the, the, the drive in and all of the data comes back. Um, but I, I would tell you that Passwords and knowing how stuff set up, how stuff is set up and where data is are the three things that I would hit. I would try to make sure that all three of those things are as easy and discoverable as possible. And I was obnoxious enough that inside of the legacy folder, the very first folder is 00-start here. And inside of there is a one-page markdown doc that just walks through. Here's where the data is stored. Here's how things are set up. Here's where the network documentation is. Here's where the password documentation is. Here's where the here's how to access the data or the steps to 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 import the pool. And I can fit that all in a single page. So hopefully, she just opens that PDF and she's good. And then above and beyond all of that, exercise twenty minutes a day and. Uh, and eat healthy and you won't have to worry about this problem for a long, long time. But I mean, really though, I mean, if that, that's what you do, you live till 90 and then you don't have to worry about it. And then you can manage your own data. I mean, we're starting, well, let's not, let's not Steve, let's not start the question with the presumption of failure. Let's pretend like we can succeed here. Sure. Why not? 
<laughs> Steve, <laughs> Steve, does, Steve is very Steve would eat the same sandwich every day for the rest of his life if, if his wife would allow him. Pretty much. Tiny in the chat room writes in and says, have y'all ever looked into Odoo accounting for bookkeeping? I heard that you've been looking for an open source bookkeeping software, and it looks like Odoo can do uh, most of that keeping other things. So Odoo has come up a couple of times in the show recently, not the least of which in the just the email a few before talking about using it for a POS system. So I've looked at Odoo many times before, and here's what I would tell you. I think it's a solid platform. I think that the pricing at $25 a month is a little steep, particularly when you consider that, especially if you're using the time tracking functionality, you're going to have to create that for every employee that you have. So even with our small team, we'd be over a few hundred dollars a month to have them host and provide this service for us. So then you say to yourself, well, Noah, you could self-host. Isn't that what you would do? Well, here's the problem. You features start to fall off the cliff pretty fast when you, when you look at self-hosting. So I had uh, our bookkeeper look at the software at AltaSpeed and say, hey, you know, what do you think? And her perspective was that the accounting side of things is solid, but it's a bit basic. And she said it doesn't appear to integrate any of the payroll stuff. So, you know, it does the timesheets but or taxes, but it, it wouldn't work for our small business. So I would say if you can live without the enterprise offering, you can live without some of the plugins, you don't need the payroll uh, or accounting stuff, which, again, to be fair, if you're comparing apples to apples, you would get upcharged everywhere else for that. So there's that. Um, but if you can live with all, all, all of that, then Odoo might be an option for you. Other than that, I would tell you that this is just one of the industries and one of the areas in open source that is going to be very difficult for uh, open source to do the thing well, just because you're starting so far behind the eight ball. So take that for what it's worth. If you, if you, again, if your business is a little less complex or you don't need to do, you don't, you're not running payroll or something like that, maybe it'd be a great option. Um, but I, I'm, I'm half in. And, and again, it's not, it's not even, they're not fully open source, all the code everywhere. It's like this open core model where they give you the basics and that's open source, but then the rest of it is all kind of added on the top, which I'm not, it doesn't really excite me, but not a bad product. Mike writes in to ask about backup. Now, Mike, we're going to split your question up a little bit because some of your question is answered in the rest of the episode. We're going to dig into, again, Steve's data migration and some backup practices. But I'll read the question now. Mike writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. As a Linux hobbyist, I love how much I learn from you guys every week. Based on my listening to you for years, I finally am getting serious about my backup strategy. Here's my scenario. I currently have two 4-terabyte disks in a RAID 1 array as my primary data server. I just added a removable hard drive bay to this server. My plan is to back the data up monthly to a removable 4-terabyte hard drive, which I will store in a safe. Yes, I also have off-site storage for the most vital data. My current data set contains a ton of hard links. Here's my first question. What's the best tool to do backup? I tried rsync, but my mistake was backing up a folder here and a folder there. That seems to have broke the hard links and caused rsync to back up multiple copies of the same file. If I run rsync from the root data set, will it preserve the hard links and not duplicate the data? Second question. The data set contains a number of Docker database containers. I read conflicting information that I can back up the database folder and be okay, but others say I need to do a database dump in order to back up this data. 
It seems that by backing up the data folder, there should be sufficient. What are your thoughts? The third question, I am due for a server OS upgrade. When I do, should I consider ZFS for this data array? Would or could I use ZFS over RAID 1 or should I look into RAID Z1? I have ZFS on desktop running on Ubuntu and honestly, it confuses the tar out of me. I can never tell how much disk space I have left. Thanks for a great show. I really enjoy your talk with the senator recently. Thanks, Mike. So, uh, Steve, there's some of this is specific to Mike. So if we can, let's dig into that now and then we'll circle back to the rest when we get to our main segment. Yeah, I think what I'd like to chat about is the question about Docker and databases and how to deal with those. Yes. Because um, I think that's specific to Mike and, and his other questions are broadly applicable to the water, wider audience. And I think we'll tackle those in a bit. So uh, we were going back and forth. Um, so Noah has a production team behind him um, and we really appreciate the, the various voices that bring that come to the table. Even if you guys don't hear them every week, they definitely influence the show. And we were having a very lively discussion about this particular question because uh, there are some people in the production team that think that as long as you stop the database, it's okay to copy the, the backup file, like the, the actual directory that the, the database lives in and just put it somewhere else. Um, I am not of this camp for a few reasons. So if you're using a, a file system that does something to protect you from bit rot, this might be okay. If you're copying from one file system to another that has this bit rot protection, maybe this is okay. But, um, I've been around long enough to see this actually bite people. You move the file and a bit gets flipped somewhere that you don't that you don't, you don't know, and your database either doesn't start or it's got some scrambled data in it or whatever. The database tools, especially when you're talking about like MySQL or MariaDB or whatever, the dumps literally generate a text file with a ton of insert commands to rebuild your data, which is why that backup file is safe to move all over the place because it's just a text file. Whereas the database files themselves are binary files. And if you flip a bit in a binary file, you're in for a bad time. So uh, you can get away with stopping the database container and just copying that wherever it lives off somewhere else. And that can work for a long time. But like Noah says, it works until it doesn't. What are your thoughts, Noah? Yeah. So I actually wanted to throw this over to Sleuth for a second. So I understand you've had some experience with this and so far you've managed to make it work for you, but you're, you're learning as you go along and starting to become more cautious about the way that you're doing your database backups. Yeah. So that's, I've always just snapshotted I, for a little bit of background. It's all running on ZFS. So it does have the, the bit rot protection and all that that ZFS offers. But yeah, I mean, I've always just stopped the container and backed up the entire contents. And yeah, and so to the extent that that works, I have been, you know, the thing is, we get told by, uh, you know, database people that it just doesn't make the database engine happy. The other thing that I like, I it seems to me that it follows more of the cattle, not pets, to backup data in a way that is the instruction set to rebuild the data as opposed to trying to capture in time the magical snowflake status of data and then 
and then hope that it all comes back, right? Yeah, ultimately, you you hit the nail on the head. I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it before, but databases were really uh, doing their thing as code before we called it blank as code, like infrastructure as code, for example, mm-hmm. uh, because essentially the dump is just a instructions for the database to reconstruct everything as it needs to be. Uh, and I hadn't considered that, but that is a very interesting point. So one of the other things I wanted to touch on a little bit is external enclosures. So he talks about backing up to an external drive. Steve, you would say that's a terrible idea. Why is that? So specifically the external drives you buy from the store. Now, I know that that other colleague, so Alex from Self Hosted was a colleague of mine at Red Hat, and we we tend to disagree on this. He would buy those in bulk and shuck them and just expect lower life expectancy out of these guys. For me, that's not sufficient, especially because if I'm storing it outside, if if I was shucking them and putting them in a drive like mirrored pools or something like that, maybe mm-hmm. that's okay. But if you go buy like the easy stores or whatever from the shelf, these are factory rejects. They didn't pass the QA test to be sold as regular drives. And so they just throw them in an external enclosure, knowing that the people who are running them in external enclosures aren't probably running them 24-7 or probably not putting a huge load on them because the USB bus is restricting that. Uh Uh, So if you are going to do that, if you must have an external drive, and they're not bad to do that, get get an enclosure, get a drive you know works well, and pair them together. 1-855-450-NO, it's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. So if you are going to build your own drive, there's a couple of enclosures you want might want to be aware of. So I'll start with the 3.5-inch drive. There is an enclosure from a company called StarTech. Now, I really, really like StarTech. I would tell you that StarTech makes budget IT stuff that is a very high quality. And so for 52 bucks, they'll sell you a 3.5 inch hard drive enclosure. It has a 3.0 USB 3.1 jack at the back of it, external power. It's available in both black and silver. These These are my bread and butter when it comes to, I've got a physical hard drive or I need a an external drive. If it's 3.5 inch, I love these things. By the way, uh, fun fact, the Pelican uh, 1200 series case uh, will fit, or maybe it's a Pelican 1250, um, will will fit a one of these hard drives perfectly. And so you can buy the case and a little Pelican case and cut the little foam out and it will store the uh, 1120, thank you. Uh, Pelican 1120 will will store both the hard drive as well as the power supply for the uh, for the hard drive. And so if you're looking for a, a go-to 3.5-inch drive, I think this is a really great choice. If you're looking for a 2.5-inch drive, there is there used to be one that I liked even better from a company called Satachi or Satachi, or I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, they no longer make it anymore. So I've gone to this Cable Matters one, uh, which is like, uh, I don't know, maybe I can't get the price to pull up here, but is uh, is not very much money and gives you a 2.5 inch drive that will, uh, 25 bucks, uh, that will ha- house and then give you a Type-C connection to get back out of it. Now, the only thing I don't like about this that I liked more about the Satachi drive 
is this has no it's a screwless design so you essentially apply pressure to the bottom part of the case and the little plastic thing opens up and then you get access to the drive now a lot of people would love that and go oh, yeah but it's toolless it's great you can get into it and out of it so easily right i want to assemble it and i want it to stay together i don't want the bottom to come off of it to be fair i've had this one now for maybe three four years and i'm kind of hard on it they get dropped and bounced around and all the things haven't had a problem with it so I would invite you to check those things out. When you're looking for an M.2 drive, there's two possible options. So Steve, you pulled a drive, an M.2 drive out of your Steam Deck. You said, what am I going to do with this? Oh, I'll make it into an external drive. What'd you land on? Yeah, so I got this little, it's just a USB enclosure. Um, by by default, it comes with USB-C. So like the end that you attach to it is USB-C, but you can get a USB-C to USB-A cable um, and it works out pretty well actually using the USB-C port on a laptop I actually use this to load an operating system that Red Hat requires you to use if you're doing remote training or like the remote exams and stuff like that and I just run it off of that that drive and it works perfectly well it's much faster than a regular thumb drive and it makes use of a hard drive that I had kicking around that was just kind of sitting in a box. So you can check that out. Again, all these links will be available for you in the show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com. So that drive or enclosure from Steve is like 16 bucks. Uh, and Ugreen, I will give a, a particular plug from the standpoint that all of their stuff, everything I've ever bought from Ugreen has been natively out of the box compatible with Linux. And oftentimes they'll even advertise that it's compatible with Linux. We're talking Bluetooth dongles, Wi-Fi dongles, audio cards. I mean, this is just a really great company if you want to support a company that out of the box works with Linux. Not that that's relevant in an M.2 enclosure to USB, but uh, the other stuff that they make is, is all compatible with, with Linux. The other M.2 drive enclosure that I wanted to draw your attention to is the Asus Republic of Gamers. They call it the Strig. And what I like about this is the fact that they have a little heat sink that's attached to it. I have held drives sometimes that just get screaming hot. And so this little guy has a little heat sink and will dissipate the heat. And it's got little, you know, funny colored gamier, make you look cool, uh, kind of off center design. If you care about that kind of thing, I don't. Uh, I do care about the 5100 uh, uh, positive reviews that it has, though. Um, so I, I would tell you to check uh, check all of those out if you're in the market for a enclosure, no matter what your drive, build it yourself. You and your data will thank you later. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of November 26, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. There's been quite a few releases this week, so let's get to it. OpenZFS 2.2.1 has been quickly released due to a block cloning bug that can cause data corruption in certain particular cases. Weston 13.0 is out. OpenSSL 3.2 has been released. Pipewire 1.0 is out. Version 7.6.3 of the LibreOffice Community and LibreOffice Viewer app is now available for Android in the Google Play Store. Wine 8.21 brings high DPI scaling and initial Vulkan support for Wayland. Studio One by Presonus has released version 6.5 for Linux. PeerTube version 6 is out. Proxmox 8.1 has been released. OpenMandriva LX 5.0 is out with new features and security updates. Nitrix 3.2 is out. Ultramarine Linux 39 is out, and the latest Linux 6.6 kernel, released in late October 2023, has taken an unexpected turn by being officially tagged as a long-term support kernel. 
In other announcements, Ubuntu runs 20% faster than Windows 11 on AMD's new 96-core Ryzen Threadripper Pro, demonstrating once again that Linux loves high-core count CPUs. Canonical has also released a low-touch open-source cloud solution with MicroCloud. The team behind GIMP is targeting May of 2024 for the long-awaited release of GIMP 3.0. Red Hat has confirmed that it will be removing X11 from RHEL 10 and following releases. And the functional source license has been released to further muddy the open-source licensing waters. In security news, active since 2020, the resurgence of Kinsing malware poses a significant threat to the Linux-based systems, infiltrating servers and rapidly spreading across networks. The SysJoker malware, a multi-platform backdoor with several variants for Windows, Linux, and Mac, has seen an uptick in use by APT groups to target other countries. And CISA adds Looney Tunables Linux bug to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. In open source hardware news, the original Tesla Roadster is now fully open source. And AMD's fastest gaming GPU now works on RISC-V CPUs. The latest open source drivers enable users to use their Radeon RX 7900 XTX on RISC-V systems. And in open source AI news, Real AI wins a project to build Europe's open source large language model. Real AI will work along with Leonardo Supercomputer located in Bologna. The Leonardo Supercomputer is built around the Atos Bolsequana XH2000 computer system, incorporating nearly 14,000 NVIDIA GPUs. Leonardo ranks as the fourth fastest supercomputer in the world and the second in Europe. Capital One open sources a new project for generating synthetic data for machine learning uses. Ethereum co-founder Vitalik Buterin has said that he sees the benefit of uploading minds and that we need more open source innovation in AI. And lastly, the TikTok parent company has claimed that it has used AI to optimize the Linux kernel, boosting performance and efficiency. I would tell you that Electron is maybe the best thing to ever come to the Linux desktop, in part because apps that wouldn't ordinarily be available on Linux are now available on Linux thanks to Electron. So for those of us who bounce around the Linux desktop, you may have learned to rely on web apps to get some of your job done. Maybe you use Outlook or maybe you use uh, some other service that is available via the web browser. And maybe they don't have a native Linux app, but you want one. Well, native, uh, native fire spelled N A T I V E F I E R is an app that allows you to make a native Linux desktop application out of a web app. And so from their site, are you tired of having to search through numerous open tabs on your browser just to view a web page that's your regular view? Make things easier and more convenient on yourself with Natifier. Natifier is a command line tool that easily creates a desktop app for any site and works with minimal configuration. It takes an electron and uses a Chrome underneath the hood based on native wrapper. It's an OS executable, .app, .exe, etc. that you can use on Windows, Mac OS, or Linux. Using Natifire is absurdly simple. Just type in Natifire, the website name, and create the desktop app. So we'll have linked for you in the show notes a link to the MindDrip One site that walks you through exactly how to install and use Natifire. It's available as a snap. It's available in the AUR. It's available via NPM. And one of the things, there's a couple things that I've really liked about it. So the first thing that absolutely blew me away is, again, as they talk about the tab thing, I have stuff. There's an application that I use for all of our ticket stuff. I want to have access to that all the time because I'm in it 
all gat darn day. And so instead of having to have run either a separate browser or a separate tab or have an add-on that manages to pull, instead of having any of that, I just have literally a desktop app that runs and brings me right into the site that I need. I've also used it for WikiJS. So we have uh, some places that use it for documentation and I've been able to wrap WikiJS into a little app so they just launch it up. Here's the really cool thing. Because it generates a little app and has its own little runtime container thing, it is able to save credentials and save a browser session. Steve, I've started to wonder if I could use it to containerize a web experience for different services. So, for example, could I log into something like Facebook or my bank and say, you know, remember this browser and do the two-factor authentication and then just hang on to that little uh, that folder with the executable in it. And I wonder if I'd be able to move from machine to machine and take my session with me without having to reset everything up and reauthenticate everything. It would depend a lot on time out of the session and what, what session information they're storing in theory, it would be possible because a lot of the YouTube thefts of late have been stealing the, the session cookies and stuff like that. Essentially they, they link in and steal stuff directly out of your browser, as opposed to trying to breach your username and password. So in theory, it could work depending on the cookie or session settings of, of the thing you're visiting. You can learn more by going to github.com. Oh, oh yeah, that, that's the other thing. So you can learn more about native fire, but then the other part of it is, so they, they market it as, as a command line tool. However, there is data fire uh, GUI and native fire GUI is a basic is what it sounds like. It's a basic GUI that you can click on a thing and then say, make an app over this site. And you know, the nice thing is instead of having to use flags for things like the system tray, so maybe you don't want the app to just, uh, you know, in the in the uh, just as another window, maybe you want the app to be something that runs inside of your system train. So you get that little icon where you can click on it and always have access to it. It'll just kind of stay running in the background. So that's an option that just becomes a check mark with Natifier GUI. So I invite you to check out Natifier. I invite you to check out Natifier GUI. Then I invite you to head over to docs.mindrep1.com and learn how to install and use Natifier and get you get yourself off and running. But if you have an app that you or a website that you rely on or an app through a website, highly, highly, highly recommend you check this out. It's one of those little multi-tool devices that just make your day a lot easier. So while everybody else was slacking off, eating turkey and munching down on mashed potatoes and stuffing, Steve was busy rehabbing his entire data structure at his house. So Steve, every piece of data at your house moved. This started so far as I understand it with the purchase of a 10 gig switch and a couple of 20 terabyte hard drives on a black Friday sale. Tell me the story. How did this come to be? So I was looking at the fact that it's always good to start rotating your drives on some sort of regular frequency. And I have two, two pools of four disks each, so mirrored pairs. So I have two two drives that are a pair and, and two other drives and they work together in a, a mirrored pair. Essentially, it's almost like a striped mirror if you're familiar with RAID. And I've got two sets of those. So I've got eight disks inside of the NAS that are, that are doing that. And I was looking at the age of them and thinking, well, it's about time that I start thinking about succession planning for my drives. And so I, I looked at the data usage and thought I could probably get down to uh, two tw 20 terabyte drives for the one pool and then bump everything down the line. And 
as I was waiting for the drives to come in, one of my mirrored pairs failed in the most critical of the data sets. And so that prompted this whole situation where this is now critical. I, I can't just put this off, like buy the drives and get around to it. I now have to do it because all of the drives are more or less the same age. And if one of them kicks off, I'll probably lose two or three more in the in the coming days or months. And that would be bad. So uh, when I was considering how do I go about moving the data, it wasn't a question of like technically how do I do it. There's a lot of consideration when you are burning in new disks or adding new disks to a pool to begin with. How do you make sure that the drive isn't going to die immediately? How do you make sure that it's performing properly? All of these sorts of things. When I was considering this, I thought, well, I have my air-gapped hard drive that I will plug into the USB bus and the desktop. So I, I ripped open my desktop and I got cables dangling all over the place in my desktop for four or five days straight uh, because I just couldn't be bothered to actually put all of these drives together. And essentially what I, I decided was for the 20 terabyte hard drives, I wasn't going for expediency. I was going for stress test. And so I copied data off the USB bus, and then I launched three different R-Syncs over the network to the actual NAS that I have all the disks in to pull the hard drive, and to pull the data off the hard drives. And that ran for about, about 26 hours straight because I was really, really stressing the entire system while I was doing that. So, and you, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, just so you learn stuff throughout this process, on the other side, um, you, so you had it all, you had it all burned in, you had it all tested. How did you actually go about copying the data? Did you use rsync or ZFS send? And what did you think of both? So I, I used different strategies depending on what my goal was because my goal for the 20 terabyte hard drives was I want to stress this as much as possible. Uh, I used a bunch of rsyncs because that is really read write heavy because essentially it has to, and I didn't just let them go. I, I fired up three or four threads of them and then I would kill them every once in a while when I would think about it, restart it. So it had to reread all of the source data. And uh, because essentially what rsync does is it compiles a list of the source and destination and pushes over what needs to change. And so it has to do, it's, it's pretty intensive, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it's going over SSH, it's not the fastest thing. So going back to uh, Mike's question, if he were to rsync the entire data set, would that preserve his hard links and not duplicate the data again? Yeah. So if you rsync uh, with appropriate, appropriate flags from the root, like from wherever the root of the data set is, it should copy them as it is on your system. Um, I, uh, For brevity and to not bore a bunch of people, because it's kind of boring to talk about command line options. Um, I've put a bunch of notes in the show notes here that things that you might want to investigate, such as there is a dash dash link dash destination and a dash dash ignore existing. I would suggest going to look those up and really understand what those options do for you. Uh, they may help you with your hard link situation. What would you say to his uh, RAID 1 going ZFS software RAID or hardware RAID? What do you think? I fall down on the software RAID because it's more portable. Oftentimes, hardware RAID is tied to the controller in some case, in some in some way. So if I created a RAID on my Dell perk, 
I have to have almost the exact same Dell perk in order for it to be recognized appropriately. Whereas uh, with ZFS, it's it's just software based. And so long as you have the same feature set in the destination, wherever you drop the disks, you'll be fine. So when we do data migrations at UltraSpeed, we do it one of two ways. Either we do the nuke and pave option, which is my personal favorite, which if it's possible, you offload the data to someplace completely cold, then you blow the server away and build it from scratch and rehome the data. So that's the cleanest way to do it. There's no potential place for problems, all the rest of it. The second way, though, sometimes the data structure is just too big or it needs to stay in production, so you can't take it offline to do that. In that case, we typically, when we deploy servers, deploy two VDEVs, three drives in each VDEV. And the idea is you can lose one drive in either VDEV and still keep integrity of the pool. It also means you have the performance of being able to have two places to read and write, write from, and so your performance is a little bit better. So in that case, what you would do is you would swap one drive at a time. You'd pull one drive out, you'd plug the new one in, you'd let it resilver, you pull one drive out, you put it back in, let it resilver. And as long as your drives are in reasonable health, you're going to be okay doing that. Here's the big, big but. You have to use care because at that point, you cannot afford to lose two drives from either the VDEVs during resilvering or you're going to have data loss and you're going to have to recover from backup. Anything else to add to that, Steve, in the way of lessons learned, anything like that? I mean, the big thing was that when you're trying to transfer off critical data, so you, like you said, you could replace one drive at a time, but because all of these are relatively the same age, I was worried about the resilvering process, um, essentially knocking out another drive while that was happening. So instead, part of the reason why I had cables dangling everywhere is to make sure I could get all the disks plugged in at the same time and doing a ZFS send and receive from one pool to another, especially in the same machine, is significantly faster. Uh, it also, as an aside, you it doing that copies the block bit for bit, and you will have an exact copy of your data. And there's a bunch of good ZFS stuff that happens under the covers when you work like that. So Sleuth, I understand you've been digging into backups as well. What have you learned? Well, I have learned similar to you guys that external drives generally is not the greatest of ideas. They can be a backup method, but they should not be the only backup method. Uh, as for me, what I've been using is offsite S3. Um, I've been using a service called iDrive, and it seems to be good so far. I've been using it since September, October time. Uh, it seems to do its job, but you could pick just about any generic S3 service and use that as a backup. It's nice because you get geo-redundancy and they tend to not be very expensive if you go with a provider that's specifically for backups. Uh, but for software, I like Copia, K-O-P-I-A. We can have a link in the show docs for that. And one of the things that I like about it is you can back up to just about anything, including external hard drives, S3, name your cloud provider, etc., all from the same application. And it also does encryption of the data, which is extremely important if you're putting it on somebody else's server. Copia.io is the software. So again, yeah, we'll absolutely have a link in the show notes. Steve, do you use any sort of backup software or you're just essentially, you you get down to the very simplistics of, I have a data place, all the data goes into the data place, all the data gets backed up from the data place? Uh, I use 
Spider Oak One as my kind of offsite backup thing in the cloud. So I have, and because it does encryption at rest and all of that good stuff, it checked a bunch of my security boxes. So no, and in terms of like, I haven't set up Restic. I haven't, I haven't done any of that sort of stuff. Part of it is like when you've, when you've grown up from, you know, small amounts, you just kept adding to your backup scripts until, you know, it would be hard to rebuild them. But as you just can continue to add things like line by line, it sort of grows organically. And that's just kind of what I've relied on. It's interesting. I've struggled with the whole ZFS and rsync thing from the standpoint that rsync works everywhere all the time kind of a deal, right? Whereas ZFS works with, well, ZFS. Um, and that's it. But the performance difference between ZFS set and rsync is so astronomically different that you can hardly look the other way once you start getting up into large data sets. It just be you. I mean, you essentially have to be a masochist to continue to use rsync at that point. It's uh, it definitely was a night and day difference. So the 26 hours to transfer some 15 terabytes versus four terabytes coming over in two-ish hours via ZFS send, uh, it's really hard to beat that. Absolutely. Anything else you'd leave people with in the way of good backup strategy, good backup technique, or good migration technique? So you need to always plan for what your what your target was. So I was able to achieve the the unthinkable. My wife did not notice that I did the the cutover. Like wow. the cutover went so smoothly. She was even watching stuff on Plex and that's because, you know, Plex buffers, but the cutover went so smoothly. She's just like, "Oh, like I I came up and I did my regular like I'm doing this thing now. I'm doing this thing." And I came up and I'm like, "Hey, everything's done." She's like, "Oh, I didn't even notice anything stop." <laughs> so um, I, I maintained uptime by sacrificing my desktop and, and really kind of planning out how the migration was going to be done. If you just need to get it done, then just take everything offline and it would go a lot quicker, yes. right? Because all the services were still accessing all of the data in our house while this was all happening. Yeah. The nuke and pave option is my favorite. It, we know that the data is in a nice clean state. We know nothing has happened to the data we know it's going to stay there and it's going to be there. Coming in via the question bot, this comes in via the Geek Lab. Uh, Tiny asks, does dumping a database v versus shutting it down increase the uptime since the database can be read during a dump but not written to? It does definitely uh, increase the uptime, although you generally schedule a maintenance window when you're doing a database dump because it is very intensive. So if you have... Now I'm, I'm putting my enterprise hat on here, but if you have any kind of targets like SLI, SLA targets at all, you will completely obliterate them if you try to achieve them while you're doing a dump because the dump is basically read the database, figure out what commands will reconstruct this and put that out to the file. So it is a very heavy, heavy thing. If you're in, a, in an enterprise environment or something where you can do a failover, essentially what you would do would be you would have a, a master and a slave or whatever the current terminology is using in your database technology for this. You'd lock the master and take the dump off of the slave. Um, and that way the master stays up but doesn't take any new writes so that your backup is consistent and you would maintain your uptime in that fashion. Nailer in the Geek Lab says, I'm looking into Proxmox. If I remember correctly, Noah used to run it, but no more. 
Might I ask why no more if that's the case? So, Steve, have you ever played with Proxmox? And if so, what do you think of it? I did. I generally don't like things that get in the way of me and what I'm trying to achieve. And so I didn't find a whole lot of value in doing using Proxmox. So a little bit of backup. Uh, I might use VMware over Proxmox because the, there's tons of automation in enterprise software that hooks directly in with the VMware API where it doesn't with Proxmox. So I don't gain anything with Proxmox and I lose my underlying uh, knowledge of KVM and Vert Manager in terms of like how I manage things. So I didn't gain anything. I, I installed Proxmox, I got it set up and I was like, this is neat, but it was a bunch of overhead because I had to learn the UI and then I also had to understand how like the Debian stuff worked underneath when I needed to tweak it. Whereas with with the Ubuntu or the RHEL boxes that are just straight up running KVM, it's the same thing regardless of of how I'm administering it. So I would start there. I don't like the special snowflake aspect of it. I don't like that there's one UI and that, you know, it's their special baby where I think there's some benefit in Proxmox. So first of all, snapshots are great. So you can snapshot your VMs and it, it, that part is fantastic. The other thing that is really great is if you're looking for a multi-node cluster and you want to be able to host servers and run it on, on a multi-node cluster, does is is over a thing? Yes, it is. Is it as well community supported as Proxmox? Probably not. And so, if you're just going on the internet and you're looking for help, you might be able to find some more help with Proxmox than than you'd be able to find with something like Overt. To Steve's point, though, the more complicated and the more special you get, the more specialized the knowledge and administration tasks are going to become. The other thing that Proxmox does to me that just drives me nuts. They don't allow you to update it until you have to, they want you to met you that you either pay for a subscription to Proxmox or a license for Proxmox, however that works, or you can manually crawl in and change the place that it's pulling the updates from. And then you can go pull your updates from, from that place. I would tell you, you install ZFS on Ubuntu. That's like four commands. You install libvert, which is like one command and then you'd have the same thing. You'd have the ability to do snapshots, except that infrastructure, it'll run on Ubuntu, it'll run on Arch, it'll run on CentOS, it'll run on Red Hat, it'll run on SUS. It, I mean, it doesn't matter. It'll run on anything. And so you have one standard set of tools that just works everywhere. Yeah, but no, I want web-based this, that, and the other, so I don't have to do things with the command line or use vert manager. Okay, fine, cockpit. Cockpit is going to eventually replace vert manager. Now, Steve and I might have people pry vert manager from our cold dead fingers, but... It, the reality is that the industry is is skating there, and eventually, if not already, you're going to get to the point where you can administrate a lot of this from your phone. And so we have clients that that exclusively use Cockpit to, to administer virtual machines. And, and as long as you're not setting everything up from scratch, uh, I think everything works fine. There are some more advanced options that, if they exist in Cockpit, I don't know where to find them, but they're in Vert Manager. So for those reasons... I don't know. I would steer you towards something more standard as opposed to the, you know, the special one-off thing. Is that fair criticism, Steve? I mean, it lines up with, with what I was trying to say. I think you said it more eloquently. So I tip my hat to that. So check out, check out Vert Manager, check out what it takes. I would invite you just walk through that process once or twice and just see for yourself what it takes to get Vert Manager or to get, you know, LibVert off the ground I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with how simplistic it is. And then 
your entire world becomes QCOW2 files. And so you can slide those QCOW2 files onto your laptop and you can work on them or build them there, slide them back onto the vhost, slide them onto a, you know, a temporary one while you're doing some work on it. All the virtual hosts went down, great. Slide all the VMs over to your laptop, have that as a stand-in while you wait for the virtual host to become restored. Music in our ears means we're out of time. Shows live every Tuesday. We'll see you next week. <laughs>